All right, if you have a Bible, Gospel of John. May need Bible dictionaries, we'll see. Maybe not. You may use the one I currently have. So here's what we're going to be doing tonight. This week, uh, for the Bible study exercise, we have been looking at the subject of spiritual victory. We have, we've kind of entitled this, for this entire week, the Bible study exercise, supposed to be a, dealing with the idea of the life of victory. We, we really spent a lot of time working on what is spiritual victory. We did like an entire hour on that, and we read some articles about what they define spiritual victory as being, and we had some major questions and issues with what they had to say. So tonight what we're going to do is do a little bit more, maybe trying to define it, and then we're just going to go to the passage of Scripture that they give us, and we're going to work through it. Now we are going to try to see how it could relate to victory, and then we're going to try to figure out what to do with the text, maybe because we're imposing the idea, right? The, bi- the curriculum says it's about victory, so it's easy to read it and read victory into it. So what we're going to try to do is not read victory into it. That's what we're going to try to do. Now, here's what I need from you tonight. I'm definitely going to need your participation because, as you all know, I've had a number of seizures today, right? And so... I'm not in the best frame of mind here of trying to pull this off. But if we work together, hopefully you haven't wasted your time driving here. And hopefully anyone listening online hasn't wasted, they won't have wasted their time. So I'm going to try to make this as productive as we can be. But I'm just going to be honest with you. If we look at the text, and this has been the question all week. If we look at the, in fact, this was one of the first assignments I gave everyone. If you look at this text, how does it apply to the subject? So this may be, the only thing you may get out of, out of this tonight, there's a possibility, is that we have a text of scripture where, like, Bible study curriculum produced by people who should know, say, this is what the text is about, and by the time we're done, we may say, it's not about that. So maybe it's just going to be an exercise in futility in the sense of all we're going to do is go, well, it's not about that, but I'm going to do my best to try to figure out what it is about and I'll need your help as well. We're going we're gonna to entertain the concept, but we'll, we will see. So does that work for everyone? Is that a halfway decent idea? All right, so let's do this. Um, I'm going to use, uh, which Bible dictionary is this? I think this is uh, Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology is what I have here in front of me. And we're going to just do a little bit of work and see what they have to say about victory. I'm just going to kind of skim through it and give some basic concepts because based off our last study, what conclusion did we come to about what is spiritual victory? Did we come to any kind of conclusion? Okay, we feel, we, I think we came to a pretty firm conclusion. Put it this way. The articles that we read argued that spiritual victory is a practical thing, Yes. And they pointed us to what? To know if we have achieved or experienced spiritual victory. They pointed us to the law. Right? It's just very important. And so basically, how would we define their, how would we define what they were teaching us about spiritual victory? That spiritual victory is our ability to do what? Keep the law. And what law did they give us? The love of the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, and love your neighbor yourself. In other words, basically the summary of the entire law, right? Our, our, our relationship to God and our dealings with other people, okay? So, now, what, what's the problem with pointing people to the law as a proof of spiritual victory? 
We can't keep it. Yeah, if we break one, we're guilty of all. And not only that, we're, we're, we constantly break it. I mean, that's the whole point, right? In fact, I did two broadcasts on what must you do to be saved, where we went through three passages of Scripture, and I, and I gave the... the I, I try to ever help everyone understand the concept of law and gospel. So let, let's do this really quick, before we even get to victory, because this is important. Does everyone understand the distinction between a law passage of Scripture and a gospel passage of Scripture? How do you know if you're reading a law passage of Scripture? Do something. Do this. All right? And whenever you read a do passage, what conclusion should you come to? I can't and I don't. All right? Now, a lot of people will say you can. Right? I did an entire broadcast on you can do it. Right? It's insane. Right? So the law is there to show you you cannot do this. You're in trouble. You're condemned. What does a gospel passage look like? It's done. Think of it this way. Law is due. Gospel is done. All right? And Jesus did it, right? It's done. All right? So, that's a very important. Some people remember that hermeneutic. Some people uh, deny that hermeneutic. That hermeneutic typically shows up in what system of theology? Or what stream of theology? Lutheran. It should be everywhere. Okay? It shouldn't be a Lutheran thing. That should be a Christian thing. Okay? Because it's just... Because as evangelicals, we claim that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, because we can't keep the law. But what most people do in the evangelical world is you couldn't, and getting saved, now you can. And that's where we strongly disagree, right? So if you, but you can see, if you believe that you can do it, then how would spiritual victory be defined? You doing it. Like, if I believe you get saved, you can now keep the law, then I would define your victory as doing it. But if we can't do it, then I need a different definition of spiritual victory. And so our only hope of looking to to any real meaningful definition of spiritual victory is that I am victorious in Christ. In in Christ, I'm I'm what? More than a conqueror. In Christ, I can do all things, because in Christ, I can do all things. I can obey the law, In Christ, I am holy, I am perfect, I am forgiven in Christ. But practically, I'm a sinner, right? Does that make sense? All right, I think that's important. So here's some of the things they have to say about victory. And I don't think it's going to be of much help, but we'll we'll just see what we have here. All right, they said the number of times the word victory occurs in the English Bible depends very much on the particular version one uses. For, uh, for example, victory occurs only 11 times in the authorized version, while the revised standard version contains 44 occurrences of the word. That is because a variety of Greek and Hebrew words are used to communicate the concept. So, what, what, is, what is significant about that phrase? What, what, from, from just a Bible study perspective, why should you understand that? Forget victory. I'm talking as far as a Bible student, what does that signify to you? This signifies to you that sometimes in the Bible, the concept may be throughout. The word often attached to the concept may be used less frequently. So you have to pursue the concept and not just the word. 
what we have a tendency to do is just look, where, where's the word used? Well, you may have 10 verses that use the word, or 11, and 44 places, actually, the concept shows up. Does that make sense? All right. So, and that's an, another reason why checking multiple translations can be helpful. Because even if you disagree that it should be translated victory, let's say, let's say the only places you believe it should be translated victory is where the King James translates it. The other translations has it translated that way 44 times. Well, just disregard they, use, they translated it victory. Does it speak of the concept? If it does, what's, what do you need to have a proper understanding of victory? All 44 references. If you, listen, you can't come to a conclusion about anything in the Bible until you've looked at everything the Bible has to say in regards to it. Okay, does that make sense? So before you ever have a debate with someone over any issue, the question should be, have you looked at every reference in the Bible in regards to it? If they say no, what should you do? Just walk away. People say that's rude and that's arrogant. No, there's no point. What are you going to do? Now, if they, if they are asking and not debate, there's a difference between someone asking and someone debating, right? You, and, and, well, you, you know the difference, okay? So, that, I think that's kind of interesting, all right? Now, in the Old Testament use, the concept of victory signifies more than just a military conquest, though it includes that. So, what's one idea victory can include? Military conquest. Now, is that a, that's, that, that's probably speaking of what kind of a military conquest? An uh, actual, literal one. So it wouldn't have necessarily specific for us unless we try to bring it over to what? A spiritual warfare victory. And then we'd have to ask ourselves, what does that look like? But, okay, you get the idea? Okay, they go on. I don't want to spend all night on this because I want to hurry, but I want us to at least look at this. For many of the writers of the Old Testament, victory is ultimately something that comes from the Lord. Hear that? For many of the old writers of the Old Testament, where does victory come from? The Lord. And it is the Lord who carries on the fight. Now, if we transfer that over, then this is very much our position, right? He, he not only does he, it comes from him, he's the one who accomplishes it. So that would clearly be a positional now, some people would try to try to put that as a practical thing, right? Hey, in your Christian life, you struggle against sin. God's there. He'll help you overcome it. And if you don't overcome it, then that means you don't have the power. Therefore, you are not saved. You see how that, yeah, this becomes a, ugh. sometimes when it gets, you get involved in Christian theology, it's just like it can be maddening all the different ways people can handle these things. Um, the Lord will go with the Israelites and their conquest of Canaan. He will fight against their enemies and he will give them the victory, Deuteronomy 24. Jonathan's role in Israel's victory over the Philistines was possible only because he and God fought together against the enemy, 1 Samuel 14.45. David defeated defeat of Goliath was in fact the Lord's victory wrought for all Israel, 1 Samuel 19.5. David's conquest of the Edomites was a victory that the Lord gave to David. They give the passages. Similar victories wrought by the Lord through human agency are also found uh, in other stories of uh, the Bible. All right. So what they're trying to say is God's the one doing it. Sometimes he, he involves humans involved in these battles. But these are all what kind of battles? 
These are actual physical battles. Right? So make sure I understand that. So can you just immediately grab these physical battles and then transfer them over to us is where you would get into a whole big hermeneutical question of how we should do that. People do that all the time with David and Goliath, right? We're David. What's Goliath? What, whatever the giants in your life are. And then how do you get rid of them? A slingshot. And that slingshot represents what? Faith. Right? Okay? Or God's word. And so then it's applied that what, what Goliath are you facing today? I mean, if you want, I could go pull up about 9,000 sermons and we could listen to them all do this. Right? I mean, we could do sermon review right now. That Trust me, there's about 9,000 of them out there like that. You've probably heard them preach that way. Yes? Is that a correct way of handling it? It sure preaches good, but it's actually just a historical story about God utilizing David for his purpose, right? Now, how you pull that over, if you're not careful, but you see what, what the danger of pulling it over. What, what's the giant you're facing? Well, you, basically, you have the ability with God to get rid of it. So some will go so far. If it's cancer, that's the Goliath. Have faith, slay it. It, it. Some people will just go crazy with, see, once you start going that direction, where do you put the brakes on to stop the application before you give people a false sense of power, which they don't actually possess or have, and then therefore they can't figure out why they still have the disease or, or their problem is not going away because, come on, they tried to kill it with the slingshot, but it didn't work. You, you see why this could be a problem? All right, um, they name a bunch of other ones here. All uh, says, all ascription of victory must go to the Lord, for he is the one, he is the greatness, power, glory, and majesty, as well as victory. In fact, the prophet, and then, well, they go on and offer some more. Bottom line here, in all cases, what do they want us to realize? God is the one involved here. All right, in the Psalter, the psalmist petitions for victory, uh, th- uh, through God, uh, God's co-regent, the Davidic king. Such victory belongs to the king, even though it comes from the right hand and arm of God. However, such victory is not guaranteed by simply military superiority, but only comes from God. Proverb reminds the reader that while human preparation is necessary for battle, victory belongs to the Lord. I think you're seeing a theme in the Old Testament, all right? Um, The prophets comment very little on the notion of victory. Isaiah reminds the inhabitants of Judah living in the uh, post-captivity restoration that the victorious Babylonian Babylonian army completes its conquest only because the Lord gives them nations and kings. When there is no human agent to intervene, it is the Lord's own arm that brings victory. The Lord, through Jeremiah's promises to avenge himself against arrogant Babylon by sending his own locust-like army to conquer them. Zechariah reminds Judah that the Lord himself, as a warrior who gives victory, will restore Judah, renewing his love and exulting over them with loud singing. Once again, all of those things, who is at work? God. So, spiritual victory, in this case, this is literal victories, is accomplished by God. He may work with and through people, but it's still God. That's the basis. That, that, that doesn't really help us a lot with the concept of spiritual victory. But, all right. Uh, then they jump to the New Testament. The, uh, in the New Testament, the noun form victory 
occurs only five times, three of which are Old Testament citations. That's interesting. Matthew 12, 20, quoting from Isaiah 41, states that Jesus, the suffering servant, will neither break a bruised reed nor quench a smoldering wick until he brings justice to victory. Paul states that the resurrection will result in victory over what? Death, rather than death having victory. For John, the victory that triumphs over the world is our faith, and the one that overcomes the world is the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's in 1 John 5. Uh, it says, if Israel, and then Paul asks, if Israel's unbelief makes God's faithfulness ineffective, um, he basically asks rhetorically, if Israel's unbelief makes God's faithfulness ineffective, and we know what the answer is, no, it doesn't, right? Uh, Israel's unbelief does not make God's faithfulness ineffective. And we've been talking about that in our Romans 9. Because God still has a promise and we believe he has to literally uh, fulfill them. Paul rejects such a suggestion outright. Instead of insisting that, that, instead insisting that even if every man is false, God will be what? True, right? uh, Insisting that God will triumph in victory when when he is judged. Likewise, believers are not to be overcome with evil, but are to have the victory over it. Yeah, now how do we have victory over evil? Practically or positionally, okay. For Paul, life in Christ is similar to a military battle or an athletic contest in which, uh, in which it is crucial that one triumph. It's crucial that those who run in the race run as to obtain the prize, 1 Corinthians 9. Paul describes his own life as pressing towards the same prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. However, believers can be thankful to God who in Christ always leads them in triumph. In fact, Christ has already publicly triumphed over the hostile principalities and powers. So, Old Testament, it's very literal, talking about literal battles. The New Testament brings it over somewhat into a spiritual perspective. Yes? There are some, but, so resurrection, that's no problem. We have victory over death. Now, once you start talking that we should triumph over evil, that we should run to win the prize, that we should fight, we all agree that we should fight, yes? We should, we are involved in a war. We should fight it. We should seek to mortify the flesh. But what do we know about victory? It belongs to the Lord, but what do we know about victory from a practical standpoint? We're never going to experience it. Okay, does everybody understand that? Okay, in other words, I do agree the New Testament says run to win the prize. Fight, bring your body into subjection. Mortify the flesh. I I am 1,000% in agreement that the Bible says to fight and do that. We should all say amen. But we should all be very honest that if that victory is to actually overcome evil and to actually stop sinning, you're going to get really discouraged really fast because you're never going to experience it. In fact, there's a high probability that even if you stop a certain sin, right? Not only will you still be committing other sins, in many cases, you'll become spiritually arrogant about the victory which you're encountering and therefore your victory will become sin for you. 
All right? So that's, I just want, I cannot stress that enough. They go into greater detail, but I just want you to see. When it comes down to it, the Bible doesn't say a lot about what spiritual victory is, even though it's such a common topic preached on. Because, and the reason, I want you to understand, the reason spiritual victory is so preached so frequently in many churches is based off a theology that says what? You can do it. You can do it. Now, if you teach everyone they can, and they don't, then that would not be victory. Victory would be the doing it, right? If you teach your children the you know, addition, and multiple, uh, addition and subtraction, right? And you give them basic you know, addition and subtraction, and you give them 100 problems, 50 addition, 50 subtraction, you know they can do it. They've been taught it. They've done it before. You leave the room. You come back two hours later. Well, clearly, if they haven't done it or done it incorrectly, that's not victorious, right? And the reason you're going to say that's not victorious is it doesn't matter what they did because you know they can and they didn't. So if I can, just think about it this way. If we can, how would spiritual victory have to be defined? Perfection. I get so irritated with the evangelical world that says you can, and then when you don't do it perfectly, say, well, that's still victory. How is it victory if I can? If I can, it should be perfection. Then they'll say, well, nobody can be perfect. Then that means I can't. Like, I... It's this really weird language, all right? So I'm just saying, I don't care what verses you look up. Bottom line is, the only way to truly have victory is in my position, because in my practice, what's going to be, what's going to be the common experience of every Christian life? This is how Christian discipleship should begin. Oh, Bobby, you're a brand new believer? Let me explain something. For the rest of your Christian life, you will encounter defeat 24 hours a day, seven days a week. No, I'm really, I mean, I know that sounds very cynical, but, if, but the fact is, if you don't understand that, you either start convincing yourself you're victorious when you're not, which many Christians do, or you, yeah, when, you first become, when you first become a Christian, you're like, oh, all these people are wonderful, and then you get to know them, you're like, wait a minute, they're not so wonderful, but they think they are. Right, So then you just start thinking, well, I'm supposed to think that I am. But isn't it better to just know it from the start? All right, now, with all of that said, that, that kind of concludes all of our thought thinking from last time. Now, the text of Scripture offered by the curriculum starts where? For those who are looking at the curriculum, John chapter 16. John chapter 16. John chapter 16. All right. Now, there's a part of me who wants to try to put some of these words back into this broader context, but we won't do that right now. But we spent weeks looking at John 13, 14, and 15, and parts of 16. All right. So here we go. All right. What, what precedes 
Well, the, 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 we're going to start the uh, curriculum passage. They start in verse 19. We're going to start in verse 17. So before we get started, what precedes verse 17 and John 16? What is discussed in verses 1 through 16? You can just skim it and give me a basic summary. What is discussed in verses 1 through 16 of John 16? Okay, well, first, you're going to be persecuted. Right? Everybody see that? In verse, I think it's verses 1 through 4. Would everyone agree that's persecution? Does verse, verse 5 change subject? But now, okay, so clearly it changes, right? So, so let's just start. Persecution is a reality that he tries to prepare them for. All right, so we we have that context. Now, starting in verse 5, how far, what's the subject that begins in verse 5 on the way down? Okay, so in in, in face, okay, the reality is there's going to be suffering. Right? So to help them with their suffering, which will include him leaving them, he's going to send them a Holy Spirit to bring comfort. All right? Does he say anything else in the rest of that section that would be uh, something separate or different that we need to separate? Because he talks about the Holy Spirit starting from what? Verse 5? Is it starting 5 or 6? 7, okay. And the Holy Spirit's talked about in verse 7 down to where? Okay, 14. Okay, does, is anything, does anything spoken of about the Holy Spirit gives you some idea of spiritual victory? If you were to attach any of that to victory, what would you be able to say about victory in relation to what is said about the Holy Spirit in verses, what, 6 or 7 down to 15 or wherever it stops? The Spirit is doing the conviction into the world, so it has nothing to do with our victory. Okay, all right, that has nothing to do with us in any way, shape, or form. Okay, next. So he's going to convict the world. That's a good thing. I'm not in any way diminishing it. I'm just saying it doesn't really say anything about my spiritual victory. All right, next. After he's going to convict the world, then I think he switches over to what he's going to do. He's going to do this to the world, but what is he going to do for whom? Immediately, that's not us. Okay, so immediately right here, I've already got an issue. And I, and I know I, a million people listening will get all mad, but that is not us. That's what verse? Verse 13, he will guide you into all truth. That is not us. Right, and it's not our victory. It is, victor- it, it is victory for the people he's promising. He's speaking specifically to the disciples, right? People are going to be instrumental in the founding of the New Testament church where apostolic authority is going to be everything or the church cannot survive, right? Okay, why do we know that's not, and I know this is very critical, why do we know that's not about us? Why do we know the Holy Spirit's not going to guide us into all truth? 2,000 years of church history. 
If the Holy Spirit's leading us into all truth, how many commentaries should there be? Should there ever be a disagreement here? Well, there shouldn't be because the Holy Spirit's guiding me into all truth and you people just need to listen. But for some weird reason, you claim to have the Holy Spirit, I claim to have the Holy Spirit, and you guys are constantly wrong. Which demonstrates you don't have the Holy Spirit, therefore I'm the only one saved. You see how that game gets played? It happens all the time. You know, look, just go how say, oh, Christian, that person doesn't have the Holy Spirit. That person's not saved. That person's not saved. That person, because this is what it leads to. We, we have not been guided into all truth. Okay, I don't care who's listening to me and I don't care how much you disagree. If you disagree, then I'm going to tell you you're wrong because the Holy Spirit is leading me into all truth, telling me that he doesn't lead everyone into all truth. Like, I mean, like it becomes, you realize there's just no way to win that argument. Do you, do you see the spiritual manipulation, the danger of spiritual manipulation in that? That's why I cannot stand when preachers are like, I didn't know what to do with this text and I prayed and God gave me the answer. Well, the minute I say that, what am I saying in my sermon? You can't question what I say. And every Christian runs around claiming God gave them the answer. That's why if I ever hear someone, when you come to a difficult passage of Scripture, what do you do? If they say the following words, I just want to scream and burn my house down. When they say, pray. That's what I do, okay? As soon as someone says, and you say, well, how unspiritual are you? No! What is praying going to do for you? If praying worked, everyone who's ever gone to Bible college would just come in and pray and pass their test. It doesn't work. When I worked at Pearson, I watched it all the time. They'd come in, you know, well, they get ready to take their nursing test and pray. And they failed the test. Doesn't work. Okay, and what do I mean it doesn't work? Because for it to work, what would be required? God would have to speak to you outside of the word, right? Now, some people will bring it back to my remembrance. Well, I can't, it doesn't work that way, right? I mean, how many times do I ask you about a reference of scripture and y'all are like, uh, 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 I could stop and go, everyone pray. Got an answer yet? Now, I know that sounds very wrong, but it's just true. He's not leading us into all truth. It's just ridiculous, right? It just doesn't work that way. How, how, does, how do we understand a difficult passage? Well, that's clear. So that, that's not for us. That, I do believe he led them into all truth. That's how we ended up with a New Testament. Right? Okay, but it doesn't work for us. Okay, what happens after that? This is taking longer than I wanted. Okay, so he promised it again, and that's I then I think specifically to them it's a promise because then and they do see him again pretty soon, right? He goes to the cross, dies, buried three days, raised again, and then they see him. Right? They see him, right? He, he appears to, to them, right? At different times. Yes, agreed? Okay. And then is that how that section ends? All right, now, go to verse 17. Here we go. 
We got to get down all the way down to verse 33 and we got to go fast. All right, here we go. That took a long time, but here we go. Everybody ready? Then said some of his disciples among themselves, what is this that he saith unto us? Right? Okay. They're like, does anybody know what's going on here? Does anybody know what's happening? We are so confused. We don't know what in the world is happening. All right? Now what happens? Okay, well, what part confuses them? A little while you shall not see me, and again, a little while, and you shall see me, and because I go to the Father. All right, there's so what? We are going to see you. We're not going to see you. Then we're going to see you. What? What? Like, what is he talking about? Like, they, they don't understand. And I know we have a tendency to look down on them like they were so dumb. They, look, it's, it's just so frustrating. Sometimes it's easy for us to look down upon them. Uh, what are you getting ready to say? Okay. Not only did they not have that, we, we have a million commentaries and we can't figure out what he's saying. All right? We can't figure out what he's saying half the time. All right. So next... They said, therefore, what is this that he saith a little while? We cannot tell what he saith. They're just really perplexed and confused. What's the little while? Like, for a minute? Is he just going to go walk away for a minute? Is he coming back? Like, what, what is the little while? Then what does he say? Or what, what do they say, if I can speak correctly? All right. Or, no, Jesus speaks. Verse 19. I apologize. Verse uh, 19. Now, Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him and said unto them. He knows that they're like, say, like, what, it's almost like, hey, hey, what's going on, what's going on? And he's like, stand right here. <laughs> right here, guys. Okay. All right, so then he's like, do ye inquire among yourselves of that I said a little while, and you shall not see me, and again a little while, and you shall, uh, and ye shall see me? Verily, verily, I say unto you that ye shall weep and lament, but the, but the world shall rejoice and you shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. Now stop right here. First of all, I, I, I don't know about you when, when I, because, you know, for the Bible study exercise, I tell people we read it over and over and over and over. I don't care how many times I've read this this week. I have to laugh. This is the most hilarious thing I've ever seen in my life. Just read it. What's their question? Well, what's a little while mean? And then he goes, you're, you're going to be sad? Then you're going to be happy. How does that answer, what does a little while mean? What does that even mean? Right? See, y'all get mad when y'all ask me questions and I look, look what does that even mean? I'm, I, I'm following the biblical person. I don't give you an answer. Okay, I'm not to give you an answer. People get frustrated when I do that sometimes. Why do you think he does that? From a teaching perspective, why do you do this? They said to show them that that's not the point. Okay. In other words, sometimes people ask a question, and I get so frustrated about this. You can do an hour of teaching. Someone asks a question, and you're kind of like, "Okay, 
what? Did I, I talked for an hour. What are, what are you even talking? And you don't want to be mean, but you, you, you kind of want to go, were you paying any attention? And usually, like from when you're doing it in person, you can almost see it coming. You can almost see it coming. Like you're preaching, boom, 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 and you say one thing, and all of a sudden you just know that that's it. The person's done, right? They're over there with their notebook. They're reading. They're reading, and you're like, they're. And, and sometimes you just kind of want to stop and just see if they if they figure out that that I'm not talking anymore. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Uh, do you have something to share with the class? Because clearly they're going off and doing their own study. And they're not even listening. And then they come back. And then after the sermon, they come in and ask a question in relation to their own study. And you're like, that, didn't, that wasn't even the main point. So is he saying this because they've missed the point? What do you think? I mean, it, this, is, this is open. You're, you're free to... Try to, I mean, anyone who reads it, you've got to f- try to figure out what he's doing here, right? It seems weird, right? I'm going to be here, then I'm going to be gone, then I'm going to come back, right? And so then they're like, oh, so a little while. What does he mean by a little while? And then his very next words are what? You shall weep, weep and lament. The world's going to rejoice. You're going to be sorrowful. All right. It is words of comfort. So it's almost like he does, see if, if this makes any sense. I could be wrong. Just throw it out. All right. Hey, Bobby, I know you're trying to figure out a little while. Okay. You're missing the point here. I'm leaving. When I do, it's going to cause great distress. Not only are you going to be distressed, other people are going to be feeling like they are blessed because I'm gone which is going to increase you being upset and confused. But it's going to be turned into joy. So you're trying to figure out a little while. How long is a little while? You need to understand how to process what's about to happen. The bigger point is how do you process what's about to happen? They're focused on a little while. When is it going to, how long is it going to be? And he's like, you need to know how to process it. You need to know how to process it. And, he, and he, he, what does he want them to understand? Yes, there's going to be sadness. Yes, other people are going to rejoice. But in a, he doesn't say how long, but at some point you will then experience joy. What does he say in the next verse? Does he change the subject in the next verse? What, what example does he give in the next verse? A woman in labor. So he gives the principle, then he gives an example. Now, let's stop right here. If this was going to have anything to do with spiritual victory. Now, we know spiritual victory primarily is what? A positional thing. A positional thing. We do know that in practice, we are involved in a battle and we do try to overcome, right? Now, let me ask you a question. How important is the concept of joy in relation to one growing and being victorious in their life and as far as a practical concept? Do you think the concept of joy has, or or the promise of joy? Actually, if you think about it, it's not even joy, is it? 
It's the hope of joy. It's, it's more, it's not even about joy. What would you call this? Would you call this joy or call this hope? Because the, they're not going to have joy for a period of time. So it's really a concept of hope. Would you agree? Or disagree? How many agree? How, how many think it's, uh, he's trying to give them concept, he's trying to give them an understanding of joy or is he trying to give them an understanding of hope? I, I got I got how many hopes? Two. I got and don't know back there. Don't know. Okay. Right. I'm saying up to this point. Like when he talks about for a little while, clearly he's implying for a little while they're not going to have uh, joy. Well, if you're not going to have joy, but joy is coming. Well, when you don't have joy, then that means it can't be joy that's the issue. It's hope. But, or, or the joy would have be no value until you get it. A promise of joy, but what's a promise of joy? Hope. Right? So now, now we'll go further on, but I'm saying initially I think this is almost a promise of hope. Now, let's ask the question again. How would hope be significant for you in your Christian life? How does it help? What it should do is that whatever you're facing, right, you see beyond what you are facing, right? It's like in, in martial arts, one of the things for tests you have to do, you either kick a board or, or punch through a board or, or a brick or whatever the case may be. It's a breaking technique, and you're always told, do not punch the board. Punch through the board. You're punching on the other side, if you just punch the board, you have a tendency just as you go through. You're punching the other side, right? So in a sense, hope is you're looking, you see this, and you're like, that's not good. That's not pleasant. That's horrible. That's pain. That's suffering. It may be tragedy. It may be death. It may be disease. It may be plague. It may be pandemic. It may be isolation. It may be depression. It could be your house burning down. Whatever it is. And what do we have a tendency to do whenever it's pain? That's what pain does, right? I can't see anything but pain. What Jesus is saying, there's going to be hope. And that hope is going to come in the form of joy. Now in their case, in their case, the little while is reference to what? In the the case of the disciples, the little while is a reference to how long? The little while. They're asking a question about a little while? He just gave them a promise of joy. So what is the little while in their context? For, for their joy. Or for both. Okay. okay. Do what? Okay, he's talk, the disciples are worried about a little while. He just gave them a promise of joy. So what is the little while for them? Jesus is crucified on when? 
A Friday, most some say Thursday. Okay, but for, let's say Friday. Jesus is buried three days and three nights. He's resurrected. And then within a couple of days of that, he's what? He appears unto them. So their little while is how long? Just a little while. Just a couple of days. Right? Just a couple of days. I, I, I'm, he, he doesn't define the little while, but we can define it because we can look back. Why do you think he doesn't define it? He doesn't say a little while is going to be five days, four days, three days. It's going to be three days, and then, and then the women are going to say, Who, where, where, where? they're going to run, they're going to wait, he, where is he? And then finally he's going to appear in the room. Oh, it wouldn't be a distraction for them. It would be easy for them. It would make it easy for them. So why would he not give the answer? Because if you know exactly when, if you know like, hey, for three days you're going to suffer, but tomorrow you're going to, the day after you're going to get a million dollars, I'd be like, bring on the suffering. Right? Here's, okay, think of it this way. If he gives them the time frame, then this all becomes irrelevant to you and I. Do you know how long little while is for you? You don't know. Right? Some people's little while is they're born and they grow, they, uh, they find themselves at the age of five or six with some horrible childhood disease that they suffer until they're 20 or 30 and then they die. Their little while is 30 years or 20 years. Some people go through a life of suffering. That little while is long time. What's the hope of joy then? Well, what, death, you're freed from it, right? Salvation, glorification. Does everybody, I, 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 everybody's looking, I'm either, I'm not, I'm either I'm not explaining myself very well or I'm confusing everyone. The question is, what is a little while? Yes? Does everyone agree that that's the question? Jesus doesn't appear to answer the question, right? He immediately goes in, you're going to be sad. They're going to be happy, which is going to make you sadder. But then you're going to get joy. What's their little while? We know exactly how it is. We've read the book, right? He dies. They run off. The women come and say, hey, the body's missing. You're right, the body's missing. And then when they go back, who appears? Their little while just ended. Their sadness turned to joy. So we know how long their little while is. Three, maybe, maybe four days, three, three days, three nights. So the fourth day, they at least know the tomb is empty, right? Okay. Does that, does that make sense? That's defined. For us, we don't know how long the little while is, but what do we know? That whatever we face that brings sorrow will end in joy. And we know that's applicable to us. How do we know it's applicable? How do we know it's applicable? Because it happens. What does the Bible say in Revelation about at the end? No tear. No pain, no sickness, 
No death. That means the absent of all of those would be the presence of what? Joy. Right? Is everybody sure? I'm still getting that feeling that I'm not making myself clear, okay? I know I've had multiple seizures, but I think I'm trying to be clear here. It's like everybody forgot about the little while. That's the whole question that Jesus is responding to, right? You see, you see why he didn't say, this is what I meant? Because he's trying to get you to figure it out, okay? They're going to know exactly how. He doesn't have to tell them how long a little while is because they're getting ready to experience it. He's giving them all this information right before he goes, gets ready to be arrested. Does that make sense? But we don't, we're not given that information. All right? I, I started suffering with uh, my seizures in 2003. I don't know where the little wall ends. But at some point, I won't have seizures anymore. Does that make sense? All right. Now, what happens next? We got to hurry, we got to hurry, we got to hurry. He gives the example, right? A woman, when she is in travail, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for the joy that a man is born into the world. In other words, what's the point? Pain for a period of time, joy after. Pain in this life, joy forever after. Does that make sense? In this particular case with a woman, it's not a perfect illustration because there's joy until the kid grows up. All right? I'm just just joking, okay? All right? It's okay. And you now therefore have sorrow... But I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice with your joy, no, and, and, and your joy no man taketh from you. Okay, when they, get, when they get this joy, no man's going to be able to take it. Why? Why is no one going to be able to take this joy that they're going to encounter? Because their joy is connected to whom? Christ. Once he comes back, no one can get rid of him because he's eternal. Right? Okay, so therefore, if my hope and joy is in him, my hope is what he's going to give me. No one can take that from me because no one can stop God from doing what he's going to do. And if my joy is him, no one can take that joy away because no one can remove God. The only way to get rid of my hope and the only way to get rid of my joy is for someone to go into heaven and pull Jesus off the throne and kick him out of heaven. That can't happen. Yeah, the world had a, a, a little bit amount of time. They think they got rid of him. But we know that he's at the right hand of the Father from which he's going to come to judge the living and the dead. And when he comes, what do we refer to the coming of Christ as for the Christian? Our blessed hope. Our hope and joy is, per, is complete. My joy can't be taken by this world because it's in Christ. It's not in the world. My hope has nothing to do with what the world does. My hope is not gas prices go down, gas prices go up, war stops, war begins, this person's in the office or this person's elected. None of that has hope or joy for me because my hope and joy is in Christ. Does that make sense? And then what does he go on to say? And in that day you shall ask me nothing 
Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Now, what does he mean by the end, end that day? You shall ask me nothing. What do you think he means by that in verse 23? Right. Okay. Well, when he's present, we don't need anything. Right? Because he is our joy and our hope. But when he's not there, then make reference to doing what? Asking the Father, and he will give it you. Now, a lot of people will say, so if I ask God, he's going to give me anything. It's not, it's not, we know it's not a guarantee because we can ask God all kinds of things and not get them. So we have to understand. They say, well, if you ask according to his will, even that can be complicated. That can get really if This raises all kinds of questions, right? Because... The, I'll, I'll just show you how this, get, this, this can, man, this can drive you theologically insane. All right. When pip, typically people take that verse and say, okay, it's not that you can ask anything. It's that you can ask anything according to his will and he will give it. Now, you really, you know what you just set yourself up for, right? Is God's will for you to be holy? Ask God to help you not sin ever again. Shouldn't you get that? Like, I mean, I mean that, now that, that will drive me insane. Like, hey, because that's what I was taught my whole Ask anything according to his will and you'll get it. Well, then I asked him not to help me sin and I sinned. So. That, 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 get, that raises a billion questions, does it? Not, I mean, that raises a million questions. I don't have a good answer here. Okay, I, I probably don't have enough faith. That's probably it. But I have yet to find anyone have enough faith to stop sinning. Okay, so, all right. Verse 24. Hitherto have you asked nothing in my name, asking you shall receive that your joy may be full. That's interesting. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs, but the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. All the day you shall ask in my name and say uh, not unto you that I will pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loveth you because you have loved me and have believed that I came out from God. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. Now, because we're out of time, we didn't get to, down to verse 33. But I've done Bible study exercise. I never promised to do it all. So I've given you a lot. So here's what I will say. Right? Here's what we will say. Jesus is emphasizing for the disciples, the reality of suffering and the promise of hope and joy and the source of that hope and joy. So let's go through this again. Jesus is, is explaining to them the reality of suffering. Everybody got that? You may want to write this down. Right? Now, this is very important. When we talk of spiritual victory, not in a positional way, in a practical way. When we speak of spiritual victory, in other words, what will help you be effective and as victorious as you can be in this life? We're never going to be completely victorious, agreed? But we can always try to grow and be as, as victorious as we can be. What's one thing you need to be aware of? In this life, you're going to experience what? Suffering. Man, you, you, if, every brand new Christian needs to know that. Becoming a Christian does not mean 
you remove all promise of suffering. It is, it's a guarantee. There's suffering in this life. Right? But with that reality of suffering, what do we have a promise of? Hope, eternal hope, or hope and eternal joy. I'm going to say it that way. How does that help you with the suffering? Helps you see past the suffering and look towards the hope and the joy. Right? What is the source of that hope and joy? Christ. Why is that good news? No one can take it from you. Circumstances can't take it from you. People cannot take it from you. That is how this could possibly relate to spiritual victory. Even if we don't rely it to it to spiritual victory, we can at least grab on to the concept, yes? Hope and joy found in Christ. Now, we are left with a challenge this evening. I'll just end with the challenge. How do we understand, for, not just once in Scripture, but there are multiple references that if we ask anything, that we will receive it. Now, if you say, well, yes, if we ask anything according to his will, we will receive it. That's still majorly problematic. Again, because I can give you clear Scripture that says this is God's will for me. I can ask that that would happen. And guess what? It doesn't or does it? Okay, very good. Bobby just offered one possible answer. We already know that he's not going to guide us all into all truth. That's very much a promise for the disciples. Is this a promise for the disciples and not for us? Ask anything, you're going to receive it. If we remove it from us, then we don't have to worry about it, right? Now, some people are like, no, 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 no. But again, the minute you say, yes, if you ask anything according to God's will, you will get it. Then is God's will for me to be holy? Make me completely holy. Well, obviously that's not going to happen practically. I could, it could be answered. He has positionally. So in that case, he does give me that. But I like Bobby's possible answer. Well, maybe this is for the disciples. Because they do go on to do some amazing things, right? Some amazing miracles. Healing people. God speaking directly to them. Very good point. Paul, was this for Paul? Was that promise there for Paul? Paul's not around. Yes, yeah, so you see, we, if we restrict that just to the disciples that were present right there, then, then we don't have a problem with Paul being told no. Now we could say, well, Paul asking to remove the, the thorn of the flesh wasn't God's will. So then we would have a way out. So, in other words, I'd have to find something that clearly is God's will. I know this. None of them were sinless. And, mm-hmm. well, yeah, it, could, it could be argued that, yes. So, I, I think we could restrict this to just the, the disciples who are present, right? 
and that, that's the only application. If we try to expand it, you see where the problem gets, right? Because all I got to do is find something that the Bible says is God's will. And when people ask for it, they should get it. And we know that that's not the way it works. Again, is it God's will for me to be? And then you could argue, well, it's not God's will for us to be whole, sinless practically. And you know how, well, how that would drive people crazy for me to say that. It's, God, it's not God's will for you to be sinless in, in, in pract- practical terms. People will lose their minds if you say that. But clearly, I mean, you pray all day for you to stop sinning. You're not going to stop. You can pray 24 hours a day. You are not going to stop sinning. You'll be sinning while you're praying. Probably after about 45 minutes. You'll be like, I'm hungry and I'm tired. And you're going to stop. I guarantee it. So that's a challenging section. Agreed? I, I wish I could give you an answer. Well, no, actually, I don't want to give you any answers. I like leaving leave it this way, all right? But as ever, I, I want to make sure we don't get confused. That first part there about the a little while, the hope, do you understand why that I, I'm drawing an application to us from that? Because some of this we think is directly, specifically at the disciples. Because this is, I'm not taking the little while saying, well, they only suffered for that many days and us. That's why I wanted you to say, how long was a little while for them? That's why I was trying to get you to answer it. Why can I say the principle applies to us? Suffering is a promise of life. That, that is, is, we're all told that tribulation is going to be in this world, right? Does everybody agree with that? Okay. Do we all have the same hope? Christ. Joy is in Christ, right? So in other words, we can take those principles and they are applicable even though there's some things in this text that are specifically for them. We're not taking a promise. I'm not taking the literal promise of a little while for them and applying to me. That's why I wanted you to identify how long their little while was because I can take the concept and the Bible itself seems to imply suffering is a part of this life, yes, but hope and joy is something that is promised to us, right? A blessed hope and an eternal joy, and then I think can take away. You see how I was able to take that? Sometimes in one passage, you have some things that are not applicable and some things that are based off other factors, yes? All right, does that make sense? Okay, I hope so, all right. I don't think any, um, let me look really quick. I haven't looked to see if anyone asked any questions on the app. Let me... Let me look really quick. Nope. All right. So we'll stop right there. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, I, I just thank you that I was able to make it through this hour. Thank you so much for helping us all pay attention. And I pray that whatever has been taught this evening, you would give us uh, the desire to really think about it and apply it correctly. There's some things there we don't understand. I, there's so much I don't understand when it comes to praying, yet you're sovereign, yet I'm supposed to pray. What will you will do, won't do. I just know I'm supposed to pray, even though I don't understand how it works. And sometimes that's the best we can hope for. Help us do what we can do and tr- what we don't understand. We just leave with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...